there was a whistleblower who worked for the Ohio EPA, and he got really upset because he was doing an investigation and the government wasn't moving fast enough. So he sent a memo about all these concerns, and he also sent a memo about the water lines, that they were 58 years old, and at low pressure they could leak, and they were going through some of this waste. Well, somehow his memo got to the news media, and the news media had a field day with this and started doing all these articles, and I think there was something on uh, national television about it, and so he got fired for that. Well, uh, U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Ohio in November of 2000 reinstated him with back wages and any legal fees that he encountered because they kind of agreed with him. You know, he was trying to raise the issue about possible contamination. And so these kids are bringing water bottles, but I found out that most of the water bottles they didn't bring filled, you know, kids, how kids are. But here you are bringing water to drink to school and then you may have contaminated lines that are going through this, these grounds to the school district. There was never by the government a direct link from the alleged contamination to the health problems that the students encountered. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. There was a leukemia cluster that was considered to be extremely high, considering the risk that should have been here. In the cluster, there were lots of other cancers. And my personal goal was just that I didn't want anybody to go through what I went through. I had 19 surgeries. I have heart valve damage. I have limited lung capacity due to radiation to the lungs. I've been told that it's just a matter of time that I'll have breast cancer from the radiation. I had 80 times more radiation than what they use now, and that I should have statistically died from leukemia 15 years ago from the radiation. I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. I'm a graduate of River Valley High School in Marion County, and I attended here from 7th grade through 11th grade, and I was a graduate in 83. We knew of the history, and ironically, we would joke about running through the toxic sludge because there was some wet areas in the field that we always ran through. I think primarily most of the students that were affected were athletes that were out in the fields where we were probably had a lot more exposure to the soil and the air and the dirt. Episode 44 of Veteran Voices, the Oral History Podcast. Now, we have a very special guest who was the first guest we've ever had back-to-back on episodes. Dr. James Van Curen is with us to talk about his new book, The School Poisoning Tragedy in Caledonia, Ohio. If you haven't heard episode 43, go back and and take a listen to this episode because it's fascinating history. And the book is World War II POW Camps in Ohio. Now, we've always understood the veteran experience in broadest terms, you know, that include the full range of issues veterans and their families and our communities go through before, during, and after military service. Some of these issues are well known, such as, you know, post-traumatic stress disorders or military-related illnesses known as Agent Orange and Gulf War Syndrome or the most recent toxic burn pit exposure phenomenon. So also fitting into these experiences are the social, political, and economic consequences that communities endure as a result of exposures to dangerous military-industrial activities abroad and right here at home, such as in Caledonia, Ohio. Dr. James Van Curen's book tells the tragic 
but little-known story of what a small community in Ohio went through in the years and decades after World War II. Jim, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Nice to be here today. Now, your book is uh, it's, it's a recent book. Right. I had uh, published it on February 22nd and through Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. And it's an offshoot of the last book that I did, because as I was doing research on the POW camp book, I did a chapter on contamination on the home front. And from that, I found that there were several of the POW sites in Ohio that were part of a contamination. Uh, For instance, in um, Rossford camp that was in near Toledo, uh, there was a lot of contamination done there during World War II. It was a POW camp, and later some buildings were built on it. And then this one in the River Valley Local School District, they bought 78 acres from which used to be the Marion Engineering Depot, which rehabbed military equipment and sent it overseas. Uh, they bought 78 acres, and they found out that part of the acreage was toxic waste, contaminated from burn pits and other kinds of things. And uh, when the Germans came in to Camp uh, Marion, they were deloused with arsenic. And a part of the uh, school grounds, they later found these arsenic ditches where the Germans had been contaminated. So it kind of led to some high rates of cancer from the graduates of the school district. There were a lot of Army Corps of Engineers that were at the site, and they were involved with the military rehab of the equipment. And then there were obviously guards that were guarding the uh, POWs. And there were 1,400 civilians that worked at the site. Wow. 1,400 civilians working at the, at the site. Right. You know, I, a lot of people um, may think that, you know, that these military bases are, you know, locked behind fences and so forth. And people come and go through the gates. But, you know, the reality is that these are like cities. And uh, they even have suburbs, you know, attached to them, if you will. And, and so, you know, they sit um, within communities, civilians on one side, military on the inside. But, you know, military people live off base. Then there's this interaction. So that sort of sets the... the social scene and and uh, you know the um, sort of the dynamics of these bases and this base was the largest depot of its kind in the in the country right that's right it was the largest depot that rehabbed uh, equipment and what they did is they used a lot of various oils and that, those kinds of things that were carcinic and ended up burying them on the grounds all over the uh, site and unfortunately the school district ended up buying some of those properties and putting their junior high and high school on it and athletic fields on those grounds. Yeah. Well, I raised the issue about, you know, the, um, the sort of the, the, um, how these bases sit in these communities. Because, you know, if we think about, you know, the question here, we're talking about the, the pollution there, how that sort of leaches out into the communities. And um, so these things really affect everybody, right? These, these bases and what they do in the bases affect uh, a huge number of people. Now, just to put the geography um, here together, now this base is in central Ohio, Yep, right, yes. Below Toledo, uh, a little bit north of Mansfield, Ohio. So in the heartland, right? It's not, it's in the heartland? Uh, right, right. Um, a relatively rural area? Very rural, right, yeah. Um, probably, you know, low-income community, uh, hard-working people that uh, when the site was there was a little bit upset with some of the what they perceived as some contamination, but yet it provided a lot of jobs, so... There were no complaints there. Isn't that an interesting dynamic? You know, 
you know, back to the whole social dimension of this, uh, jobs are important to people. And, you know, there's a tendency, I think, to overlook a lot of things, including threats to one's health, um, you know, because right. the incomes are so great and so alluring to many. And I think that's part of the tragedy. And I think you, you sort of define that by fleshing out the attitudes that people have had, you know, in your book, you know, around this base in the, in the pollution issues. Uh, you know, the base was long gone in the 60s. And the school district had a chance to buy all this land to develop a new school, a larger complex for their school. The land was pretty cheap, wasn't it? The total was about $23,000. So very reasonable. Today, if that land was sold, the government has to tell you what was on the land if there was any contamination. Back at that time, they purchased uh, 1961 and 63, they purchased the property, uh, the government did not have to tell you what had happened on that site. But I'm thinking, at least in my research, that a lot of people that were involved with the purchase of the land knew what was going on there. And as evidence, and I put in the book a chapter about EPA had interviewed all of these people that had worked at the Marion Engineering Depot, and they listed all the kinds of activities that had happened on the site, and um, including uh, what I have a chapter called Trail of Radioactive Materials, where in the 1950s, they used uh, look for gamma capsules using uh, Geiger counters. And um, there was a, a consultant that was hired by the government as they did the site investigations. And he was to look at uh, whether or not there was radiation. His name was Jeb Ball. And he said, we were told from the time that we got there that we would not find any radioactive contamination on that site anywhere. It wasn't directed as an observation. It was directed as an order. And in his further conversation, he said, I saw a high rate. One wonders what, you know, maybe is there a cover up there or not? I mean, you have to be the judge on that. So people obviously knew what was going down there because they worked there, right? They saw this stuff. But do you think, right. do you think it wasn't known in part because there wasn't like a formal mechanism in place for people to report that stuff? Or people right. may, may have yeah. thought, well, well, the government knows what they're doing. Right. Back then, well, especially, you know, this was opened in 1942, so it was during World War II, and it was closed in 61. So this still was providing a lot of jobs for people. And that was the real key, you know, at that point in time. What the negative thing happened is once they started these site investigations, they started in 1997 after, after a new school nurse raised the issue about the high cancer rates of the graduates of this high school. Uh, then people got kind of concerned because it would face a negative image about the community in the area, and what would that do to jobs? So prior to that time, you know, this, this is a job-producing area. Uh, there's a lot of people working, and as I said before, there were 1,400 civilians there, and, you know, they were housed, I think some of them were housed on site, obviously a lot of housed off-site. So now, now is what's this going to do to the community here and the number of people that have jobs? And so that became an issue as the government went through these site investigations. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, um, you know, Columbia Dispatch article that cites that the leukemia rates were up 122% over 30 years, and this was right. 1997. So people, yeah, people, right. had, they eventually became aware of it. But, you know, you also mentioned in the book, you know, when they were working with the radiation there, they had various buildings and so forth, and they actually had the requirements that you could only spend a certain amount of time and right. around this amount of radiation. So they, they truly were aware of these dangers. Right. Well, one of the things that was discovered is that um, 
they had the special buildings with the protection against radiation, and they stored 58,000 radium markers that were part of uh, uh, bridges that uh, were used during World War II, and they housed them in special buildings. So there was lots of radioactive waste dumped into the dirt that covered up where the schools were. So there's all this, you know, concern about the radiation, even though that much was found, but yet over a period of time, uh, that could have led to, you know, some contamination and some diseases. Right. Well, you do chronicle that a couple of these radiation markers actually were found in the fields. Right. The, yes, the right, that's field. right. Right on the front lawn of the high school. Yeah, they, they missed it. Yeah, and some of the students, uh, I quoted in the book, um, one student said we were running in a toxic soup and didn't even know it. And then another said, I remember there was always a spot on the back of the field we ran through with wet socks and shoes. So this is the burn pits and stuff that was left behind. And then who knows about the radiation, but it's, there's evidence there that there was a lot of radiation involved. And so one of the Marion Engineering Depot people said he saw it, you know, kind of plowed into where the schools were eventually built. These things were buried out there. They were dumped out there, these pollutants, um, in part out of ignorance of how to properly deal with them or a carelessness, like we don't care what we do with this because we're out of here. The war's over. We're shutting down this base. You know, what do you think the dynamics are around this? I, I don't think there is carelessness because they didn't really know at that time how, what kind of impact this would be because they, you know, they figured that they buried the uh, material it's underground, that's safe. Um, that was all that was known at that time. And then it, once these investigations started to take place, then, aha, uh -huh, maybe there is a problem here. Uh, maybe the, the exposure to this could have led to these high cancer rates. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it was just, and not at the time, they didn't have the sophistication to understand the connection. Right. Environmental science is a relatively new field, right? It's really, I would say it's decades old, my understanding. I, I would agree. They did five years of, uh, you know, the site investigations and finding all of this information. And then they didn't, they didn't finally wrap it up until about 2012 or so when they finished it. And today, uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers requires uh, on those former sites an inspection every five years. And it's now an industrial park. So there's still looking at it today. So you can see back then there really, there wasn't any understanding of it. And so these folks, these students were left without any kind of help for the health problems they went through. They didn't get any kind of aid. Uh, you can't sue the government because it's too big. So there was no kind of restitution for, for the students that encountered this, these problems. And that certainly is the tragedy in all this. I mean, it's tragic that the environment was polluted in a way that it was and that, you know, people had, had to work around that stuff. You know, as part of the war effort, you know, you do what you have to do. I think sometimes there's that attitude. Uh, but the post effects, you know, when that's shut down right. and, and, and then people didn't report it and people overlooked it. And I mean, you, you quote one official who investigated this as saying like, hey, we're just here to report what we find, not to, not to, that's right. Not to fix it, right. you know. Right. That's tragic in itself. But the tragedy of, you know, th these children coming down with these di these diseases and not knowing where to get help or having the doors right. closed in their, in their faces, th that is tragic. There's no relief for this, these kinds of things across the country. This was classified as a formally used defense site. 
And we have in this country over 5,000 formerly used defense sites where, it's be, where it has been cleaned up or is being cleaned up. And then we have, you know, like 1,500 Superfund districts. And what about the people that lived around that? What, whatever happened where they could get some uh, aid to offset the health care costs? And there's nothing yet today. Right, right. Here in western Pennsylvania, we have, of course, the legacy of, of industry. Um, the war effort industry was very big. Um, but a lot of these companies are out of business. So who do you turn to, right? Who do you uh, right. ask for remedy from? I mean, that's yeah. it's, it's, it's tragic. Well, at, at this camp, at this uh, Marine Engineering Depot, um, there was an Army Reserve site right next to it that uh, was created. And so all these veterans were, were training there. And in the book, on the back, I have a, a photo of, of a, a barrel that says, I think, you know, stay away or something like that. And that was the Army Reserve site where veterans, uh, for, former veterans and existing veterans trained. Well, that became a contaminated site. And several of the veterans that were at the site uh, died from being from the contamination, which was never connected back to the site. Even though today that site can only be used 250 days a year, which makes no sense because why don't you just shut it down totally? Wow. That is peculiar. Yeah, it's very, very different. That's for sure. It, that offers very little comfort. It's like, well, this, this place is toxic, but it's not that toxic yeah. that you can't use it some, some of the time, you know. It's like, well, right, right. Know, who wants to use it at all if it's known to be toxic? You right. Know? I mean, you know, some of the stuff that, some, you know, there's benzene and the arsenic and uh, tetrachloroethylene in there, lead, right? All that stuff is known to be on this site. Yeah, and it, um, it was at various levels. There were some that was high. There were some low levels. But um, I came across one article where at the junior high, when they were doing these site investigations and starting to look at the soil and dig up the soil and that kind of thing, in the back of the junior high, they were digging it up and they found an oily mass there underground on the back playground of the junior high. And so what they did is they locked the doors so that the junior high students couldn't go out the back entrance. They didn't want them going out there. And then in 2001, the school issued that the students should bring water bottles to school uh, filled with water because they were now afraid maybe the water lines were contaminated because there was a whistleblower called Paul Jaco who worked for the Ohio EPA and he got really upset because he was doing an investigation and the government wasn't moving fast enough. So he sent a memo about all of these concerns and he also sent a memo about the water lines that they were 58 years old and at low pressure they could leak and they were going through some of this waste and he felt the tests were incomplete. Well, somehow his memo got to the news media, and the news media had a field day with this and started doing all these articles, and I think there was something on uh, national television about it, and so he got fired for that. Well, uh, U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Ohio in November of 2000 reinstated him with back wages and any legal fees that he encountered because they kind of agreed with him. He was, you know, he was trying to raise the issue about possible contamination and the delay on getting back to it. And so he was reinstated, but he wasn't reinstated at the site. And so these kids are bringing water bottles, but I, I found out that most of the water bottles they didn't bring filled. 
you know, kids, how kids are, um, that, you know, they, they started in the beginning, but here you are bringing water to drink to school and then you may have contaminated lines that are going through this, these grounds to the school district. There's a photo in the book of uh, the athletic fields where it's roped off, but the concession stand there, uh, had a water outtake there where they, people could get water and they used it in the concession stand. Well, that was shut down because they found contaminants in it. So, you know, you have all these issues out there, but yet there was never by the government a direct link from the alleged contamination to the health problems that the students encountered. So this site was given up in 1961. So it was there between 42 and 61. 61, right. Uh, And the school district purchased, not too long after that, they purchased that land. Yes, 61 and 63. What was the military's uh, response to all this? The military's response really is, um, I couldn't find any response other than, you know, they sold the property to them, other than what uh, you had quoted earlier about our job is to clean it up, and that's basically all we do. One thing they did, though, they cleaned up at Marion Engineering deep old grounds, and it cost about $35 million to do that. And then on the athletic fields, they removed, after the students had left in 2003, into a new facility. That cost about $52 million between state and local funds and government. But they then cleaned up the athletic fields, and they moved 27,000 tons of contaminated soil, and it cost about $8 million to do that. So the government did, in the end, pitch in a lot of money for cleanup kinds of things, but there, was no, there wasn't any money for health care kinds of things. Right. That seems to be, you know, the initial reaction might be, okay, we may admit that this, you know, we were responsible for this and we'll go in and we'll remove truckloads of soil. Okay. But what after that? What about the, you know, the legacy, the health the crisis legacy that remains, right? And I think that's a central right. message, you know, coming away from your book is, yeah, what about the long-term healthcare needs of the citizens and the veterans and and you, right. you tell us a little bit about the a little bit more about the POWs and their experience with these toxic exposures because I think that well, the, that's a part of the history that is still out there too. Right, there were about three hundred German POWs that were there, and their job was to be a part of the warehousing and those kinds of things. But they were also there to clean up. They did a lot of the cleanup uh, of the contaminated soil. They were involved in maintenance of these rehab construction equipment uh, where they used oils to clean them and uh, probably some of them carcinic. Uh, when they arrived there, they were doused with arsenic to clean them up and they, the railroad cars were doused with arsenic. So they left in, in uh, February of 1946. And you don't know if when they went back to Germany, what kind of health problems they had because they were directly involved with a lot of the maintenance of this construction equipment, along with the, you know, 1,400 citizens. So you're not sure what happened to the Germans when we, when they went back home. Did they encounter the same kinds of health care problems that the students did? Mm, that is a fascinating question. Did you take a visit to the site? Yeah, I went and uh, took a photograph of the junior high and of the high school, and it's used as a warehouse now. Um, there isn't anybody in it. In the beginning, they had all the windows boarded up, but today it's just, you know, they're still sitting there and they're using the uh, structures as the warehouse. I didn't see anybody around there, 
another part of the property is the industrial grounds now where these various businesses are located. And then on part of the area, there was a, a paved area where there were used cars from a car dealer, something that was in the local area. But uh, yeah, it's mostly industrial site, but the two buildings are still there and they're not being occupied by anyone. They're just used for storage because they have, those grounds have to be tested every five years. So this is this is ongoing, right? The the environmental ongoing, mm-hmm. yeah. From from what yeah, from what my research, what I found is it's it's ongoing, and they're you know they're to be tested every five years by the Army Corps of Engineers. Where did they take all that contaminated dirt and uh, other things? Do you know? You know, I'm not I'm not sure where they took where they took that. I'm not aware of it. Gosh, hope they didn't create a new problem somewhere in some other community. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, you know, here, here uh, you know, they take fracking water and so forth, and and uh, sort of the fly ash from coal plants, uh, the sludge, and they're they're trucking this stuff and shipping it down the rivers to coal mines in West Virginia, right? No, and no. You can imagine down the line what what that might yield, right, for the communities in, in rural West Virginia, right? Yeah. Right. Right. So did you have a chance to talk with um, uh, folks there in the community, and how did they respond to your research? When I was doing the research in the library there, because they had all of the government inspection reports there, and there are about 90 of them, and this lady comes up to me, and she asked me, what are you, what are you doing? I had all these documents piled around me, and she said, well, I'm looking into the River Valley local school district contamination, and back when the students had high cancer rates, and she said, would you please tell the real story and clean up the jargon and the scientific jargon that they used to explain it to us and really tell what happened? Because we don't know for sure. And then the other person I talked to, obviously, was my friend of my daughter's who got this cancer and a brain, brain tumor. Um, he related his dad tried to find lawyers to sue uh, the government because of his son's illness. And he found that First, they were interested, and then they said, who are we serving, uh, who would be you know, suing, and what we would be serving you, uh, and how would we work with you? And he said, well, you'd have to serve you know, the Army Corps of Engineers. You have to serve the U.S. Army, federal government. He said, no, thank you, because that's big government, and we're not going to take them on. Wow. It would be too costly for you to begin with. So the father made a real effort to try to find some avenue to get some revenue to help his son with his health problems. But in the end, you know, he couldn't do it because no one was willing to take on big government because he was told, you know, it's just going to be too costly for you. You will go on and on and on and you won't be able to afford this. And that's, that's a problem that still occurs today. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. These entities are are too big to challenge, too big to prosecute. Uh, Insurmountable legal costs. Oh my goodness. Through all this. Yeah. Did um did the, this community did they experience um, emigration from this? You know, people were saying we're out of here, we can't uh, you know stay here anymore. Yeah, there were some. Um, there was a board member that quit the board of education, and they moved uh, away. He pulled his daughter out of school, and they moved. Uh, in the beginning, there were some, but the, you know, it became real hostile in the community. So one person found a a window that had bullet had gone through because the people were upset that this was taking jobs away. Uh, in the beginning, there were some people that were leaving, uh, but they, in the end, you know, being a local rural community, most of the people stayed. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, there there develops the inner tensions within communities. Some people want the jobs and they're willing to overlook this. Some people say, you know, it's not these jobs aren't worth it. And then, you know, the desperation of people who need those jobs sort of rises up and bullets go through windows, rocks go through windows and wow. So, well, would you classify this um as anything that was really major or it was sort of minor? Were there a lot of incidents of this uh, sort of tension within the community? What did happen, what good thing happened, is that there was a concerned family group that was formed, the concerned families of River Valley. And um, they then connected with EPA, Ohio Board of Health, and uh, Army Corps of Engineers, and they ended up putting together an advisory council to look at all of this. So then they held public meetings uh, heard impact from the the investigators that was presented, and citizens could attend and ask questions. And things eased up after these concerned family members got involved and set helped set this up. And it kind of was a template for the rest of the country to look at in the future: mm-hmm. is to get proactive, uh, get connected. You don't need to do adverse kinds of things, but try to connect with the government and make some positive things happen. And they, and they end up doing that's how all of these site investigations became public. Uh, sometimes there were some delays, but it became pretty open and it kind of curtailed some of the violence that was going to happen. Yeah. So it came up from, from the grassroots, the, the, the grassroots. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And you have a desire to sort of connect this story with other groups around the country who may be dealing with these situations, military related or not. That, that, that's correct. Um, Recently, there was a bill introduced in the House uh, in Congress that uh, House Bill 237, or HR 2372, and it streamlines the process for veterans uh, who served in the Gulf War and in, in the Gulf area from being subject to burn pits where they ended up getting diseases from the burn pits, cancers, and those kinds of things. And so uh, Representative Raziz from California has introduced that with Marco Rubio and Gildebrand and a representative Fitzpatrick, and they've done a bipartisan bill to try to find a way to get healthcare costs to these veterans and kind of streamlining it before they, where they don't have to really go through all these steps to prove it. As long as they can show that they served in the Gulf War or in the Gulf area, then these benefits would go to them to help with their healthcare costs. Well, I, put together an op-ed to kind of connect with this. And my op-ed titled is Restitution for Civilians Exposed to Contaminants. Can Congress make it happen? And the idea, now we're doing an additional thing for veterans, which we did with uh, Camp Lejeune. And then this is streamlining the effort of veterans to get assistance for their health care costs. Why can't we also piggyback on this for all of those civilians out there that were at military camps and Superfund sites and also provide an avenue for them to streamline it instead of having to go through legal hurdles to try to get health care reimbursement. So I'm submitting that across the various newspapers and those kinds of things. Um, I got a kind of a reject from New York Times. They said they weren't interested. I got a reject from Washington Post. They said they were not interested, but I've sent it to a lot of other places. And I think there's a real interest that people should, you know, we should piggyback on this. If we're talking about doing this, for veterans in the Gulf War, why not also look at the citizens that were in the United States 
who were exposed to these contaminants at these at these various military sites and other sites, like you said, in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Well, I certainly laud your efforts there to to widen this this issue out here to to include the civilians. You know, I, we talked about the sort of the interface between civilians and military around these bases and the activities is much more porous than people think. Um, so yeah, so if military are exposed to these things, good chance that civilians are exposed to it one way or another. Um, and we know, you know, with Agent Orange and with Gulf War Syndrome and the burn pit issues, and you know, there are civilian contractors who were in those theaters. Oh, absolutely. I know of an example here in my local area of a fellow who's a contractor, and he has lung disease, and this is related to his experience over there. Um, but you know, what are his avenues of uh, recourse here to get help? Uh, and then I don't know, on his own. Uh, so I, I think what you're, what you're after here is, I think it's essential, really, if we're going to talk about environmental justice, and that's kind of how I see this, especially when you think of, you know, when people realize, when the light bulbs go off and they start to, you know, put, it, put all these pieces together, when you realize the walls that they face and the denial, you know, Agent Orange was denied for ever. On this podcast, I did an episode with a fellow from northern Pennsylvania who has Gulf War syndrome. And they denied his situation for years. Years. He had he had skin fallen off of him. And he, I mean it was it was horrific how he explained right. it. And they said, oh no, this is this is not related. Well, you know, eventually they came around, but you know, he got justice in some respect, but what an injustice to have to fight so hard to make your case on this. Well, you know, and my whole idea behind this is why not have an inclusive health care program, not only for military veterans, but also for, like you said, contractors, people that are around these sites, people that worked on the sites that are civilians, where they don't have to bankrupt themselves to get health care costs. So I, I don't know if anybody will listen to this, but at least I'm trying to send stuff out there to see if it will get connected. And I you know, have to credit the legislators and both Democrats and Republicans that have put this together in a bipartisan bill to try to address the issue from the Gulf War and the burn pits. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully this episode will reach uh, some ears. Let me ask you um, a question. I, I always like to ask uh, veterans who were through wars and various things, if in the end, right, you're looking back, if all this was necessary, this depot that they had there was that essential to the war effort and was that just we just had to have that kind of uh, facility um you know to to deal with the you know the, this massive uh, military mobilization that we had with all the big heavy equipment which was repaired there and cleaned there and so forth was that base necessary well it, it also not only supplied it for um united states but other countries that were a part of the ally group. And um, so they were doing, you know, a massive kind of thing, the world's largest rehab center. Uh, and it was housed in Ohio. And, you know, coincidentally, it was housed in a rural area. So, it, you know, it wasn't housed in Cleveland, Ohio, or, or Cincinnati, Ohio, or New York, or anything like that. But it was housed in a rural area. And if you look at some of these centers, uh, like I put in the POW book, some of the um, site or ordnance plants, which made bombs and fuses, housed in rural areas. So it was housed in low-income areas where the impact um, was kind of negative for those folks. 
uh, in, in reality. It's peculiar to me that, um, uh, well, maybe the railroads had something to do with this, uh, but you would think a port that would haul in heavy equipment would be much more um, uh, in line with, you know, handling this, this stuff than a, a depot out in the middle of nowhere, farm fields, right, in Ohio. Yeah, really, really. You're absolutely right. It's really a rural area. Uh, they had a big railroad system they put in place, you know, like the POWs were a uh, railroad system right out, went into the depot, but this is 650 acres. And where are you going to find 650 acres in an urban area? So this is a rural area, 650 acres. And today's, you know, it's still some of it's vacant, but there's an industrial plant there. But you have to bring all of that into a rural area. Just think of the transportation costs and rail costs that it was kind of mind boggling, really. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in the, in the sort of hindsight analysis of this, um, such a large area, I'm sure they acquired that property for, you know, it was inexpensive. Um, they were able to build on that site and build to it the infrastructure that was necessary, um, at least that they thought was necessary at the time for the war effort. I guess that, you know, in some way it does factor into the cost-benefit equation, Right. And so, you know, when we ask people to think about these issues, I mean, that's a legitimate question to ask. Well, you know, that was the cost of doing the business to fight that war. And so I think in some ways people may overlook, you know, well, that's, you know, yeah, war was messy and this industrial stuff is messy and people get sick and that's what happens. I'm not saying that that's, that's the right way to look at it. But you can see that there is some sort of um, uh, there's some sort of thinking along those lines, you know, when you just think about this, the activities that went on there, the mission of that depot, how it factored into the war effort, and eventually, you know, we won the war, and so that you know necessary. I see it here in Beaver Valley, you know, they call it the industrial crucible. Right, made the steel that helped you know build the ships and yada yada, and so that was all justified. Right, I'm just curious if that sort of mindset is associated with this depot as well. I think you're probably right because I think they looked at the cost benefit analysis and uh, what can we do for the most reasonable cost to fight this war effort and and um, rural Ohio and other rural parts of the country stepped up to the plate not knowing that there could be some dangers there afterwards. My whole mission behind this is to get the word out there that things need to change. So hopefully someday there'll be relief for the people that were around these or in part of this contamination that crossed our country. And like you mentioned, the contractors during the Gulf War, what happens to them? Do they get any kind of assistance? So I'm hoping this pushes for that. And uh, I would hope eventually Congress would consider, a, you know, a duplicate por- program like they're doing for the veterans of the Gulf War, which I commend them on. It. And, the, and the key thing about that is a bipartisan bill, which, you know, given today, that's pretty hard to do. So, they, you know, you have to give them kudos for doing it. Are you hopeful? Yeah, and I'm pushing hard. I mean, I'm pushing uh, uh, local here in Ohio. I've re- reached out to quite a few uh, entities, and I'm doing reaching out across the country to see if there would be an interest to push this and somehow get a grassroots movement going. Mm-hmm. You know, hope and possibility are those things that help us persevere and to cut through these barriers and obstacles, so many of which you outline in this book. And it's, 
I mean, you got to just say, oh, yeah, yep, of course, you know, seen that before, uh, you know, that sounds typical. But at the end of the day, right, uh, what do you do with this information? What do you do with your concern about environmental pollution and environmental justice? And I think uh, hope and possibility that we can make a change, that people can come together, uh, grassroots movements, uh, you know, in particular, because they are truly, truly a force. You know, when you get people mo- really, really interested and it touches home to them and they can mobilize uh, at that level, I think that's a very powerful thing. So um, I'm glad to hear that you're hopeful uh, yeah. about, you know, about the message that is in this book right. and that there are ways that we can deal with this and we can respond to this that are positive and they make real change. Absolutely. And you see, that's what happened in the Marion area where these citizens and family members came together and forced the government to communicate because there wasn't any communication going on. It was just, you know, I'm doing this work. We're doing it. We'll give you an update periodically. EPA was terrible in the beginning, Ohio EPA. But then after this family, this concerned families of River Valley local school district got together, it forced a a formation of an advisory board to tell the public what's happening with these investigations. And that's the kind of thing I would hope happens across the country where people get together, force the government to look at what the problems are, look at the history, uh, expand the local effort, and make people come together and discuss it in an open forum. The book is The School Poisoning Tragedy in Caledonia, Ohio. And Jim, I really, really appreciate this conversation that we've had about the book and the issues here in general. And I really appreciate what you're doing. And thank you so much. Okay, Kevin, thank you. And get over your allergies. (laughs) (laughs) I have to blow my nose. (laughs) Yeah, right. Now now you can. We've talked too long. (laughs) Well, take care. Thank you again for your effort. I enjoyed this, Jim. Thank you.